Google created the programming language for its Android operating system based on Java, an application programming interface, or API, owned by Oracle. So, Oracle sued Google for copyright infringement. A federal district judge held that programming languages are so essential to the progress of science and useful arts that APIs are not subject to copyright law because if they were, it would stifle innovation and collaboration, which are both essential to the very purpose of copyright. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit reversed that district court ruling holding that APIs are copyrightable, but it stopped short of determining whether Google's use was fair use. Upon remand back to the district court, a jury found that Google's use of the Java API was fair use. Oracle appealed, and the Federal Circuit again reversed the lower court. The Federal Circuit held that Google's use was not fair as a matter of law. Today I'll be reading Google v. Oracle, a case in which the Supreme Court was asked whether copyright protection extends to a software interface, and if it does, whether the petitioner's use of a software interface in the creation of a computer program constitutes fair use. In order to decide as little as possible in the resolution of this case, the court declined to answer the first question and, instead, proceeded under the assumption that software code is subject to copyright protection. In a 6-2 opinion, the court decided that Google's limited copying of the Java SE API indeed qualified as a fair use under copyright law. And now, the 2021 opinion of the court in Google LLC v. Oracle America, Inc. Justice Breyer delivered the opinion of the court. Oracle America, Inc is the current owner of a copyright in Java SE, a computer program that uses the popular Java computer programming language. Google, without permission, has copied a portion of that program, a portion that enables a programmer to call up pre-written software that, together with the computer's hardware, will carry out a large number of specific tasks. The lower courts have considered, one, whether Java SE's owner could copyright the portion that Google copied, and two, if so, whether Google's copying nonetheless constituted a fair use of that material, thereby freeing Google from copyright liability. The Federal Circuit held in Oracle's favor, i.e., that the portion is copyrightable and Google's copying did not constitute a fair use. In reviewing that decision, we assume, for argument's sake, that the material was copyrightable, but we hold 
that the copying here at issue nonetheless constituted a fair use. Hence, Google's copying did not violate the copyright law. Part 1 In 2005, Google acquired Android Inc., a startup firm that hoped to become involved in smartphone software. Google sought, through Android, to develop a software platform for mobile devices like smartphones. A platform provides the necessary infrastructure for computer programmers to develop new programs and applications. One might think of a software platform as a kind of factory floor where computer programmers, analogous to auto workers, designers, or manufacturers, might come, use sets of tools found there, and create new applications for use in, say, smartphones. Google envisioned an Android platform that was free and open, such that software developers could use the tools found there free of charge. Its idea was that more and more developers using its Android platform would develop ever more Android-based applications, all of which would make Google's Android-based smartphones more attractive to ultimate consumers. Consumers would then buy and use ever more of those phones. That vision required attracting a sizable number of skilled programmers. At that time, many software developers understood and wrote programs using the Java programming language, a language invented by Sun Microsystems, Oracle's predecessor. About six million programmers had spent considerable time learning and then using the Java language. Many of those programmers used Sun's own popular Java SE platform to develop new programs primarily for use in desktop and laptop computers. That platform allowed developers using the Java language to write programs that were able to run on any desktop or laptop computer, regardless of the underlying hardware. Indeed, one of Sun's slogans was, Write Once, Run Anywhere. Shortly after acquiring the Android firm, Google began talks with Sun about the possibility of licensing the entire Java platform for its new smartphone technology. But Google did not want to insist that all programs written on the Android platform be interoperable. As Android's founder explained, the whole idea about an open source platform is to have very, very few restrictions on what people can do with it. And Sun's interoperability policy would have undermined that free and open business model. Apparently, for reasons related to this disagreement, Google's negotiations with Sun broke down. Google then built its own platform. The record indicates that roughly 100 Google engineers worked for more than three years 
to create Google's Android platform software. In doing so, Google tailored the Android platform to smartphone technology, which differs from desktop and laptop computers in important ways. A smartphone, for instance, may run on a more limited battery or take advantage of GPS technology. The Android platform offered programmers the ability to program for that environment. To build the platform, Google wrote millions of lines of new code. Because Google wanted millions of programmers familiar with Java to be able to easily work with its new Android platform, it also copied roughly 11,500 lines of code from the Java SE program. The copied lines of code are part of a tool called an Application Programming Interface, or API. What is an API? The Federal Circuit described an API as a tool that allows programmers to use pre-written code to build certain functions into their own programs, rather than write their own code to perform those functions from scratch. Through an API, a programmer can draw upon a vast library of pre-written code to carry out complex tasks. For laypersons, including judges, juries, and many others, some elaboration of this description may prove useful. Consider in more detail just what an API does. A computer can perform thousands, perhaps millions of different tasks that a programmer may wish to use. These tasks range from the most basic to the enormously complex. Ask the computer, for example, to tell you which of two numbers is the higher number or to sort 1,000 numbers in ascending order, and it will instantly give you the right answer. An API divides and organizes the world of computing tasks in a particular way. Programmers can then use the API to select the particular task that they need for their programs. In Sun's API, each individual task is known as a method. The API groups somewhat similar methods into larger classes and groups somewhat similar classes into larger packages. This method class package organizational structure is referred to as the Sun Java API's structure, sequence, and organization or SSO. For each task, there is computer code, known as implementing code, that in effect tells the computer how to execute the particular task you have asked it to perform, such as telling you of two numbers which is the higher. The implementing code, which Google independently wrote, is not at issue here. For a single task, the implementing code may be hundreds of lines long. It would be difficult, perhaps impossible, for a programmer to create complex software programs 
without drawing on pre-written task-implementing programs to execute discrete tasks. But how do you, as the programmer, tell the computer which of the implementing code programs it should choose, i.e., which task it should carry out? You do so by entering into your own program a command that corresponds to the specific task and calls it up. Those commands, known as method calls, help you carry out the task by choosing those programs written in implementing code that will do the trick, i.e. that will instruct the computer so that your program will find the higher of two numbers. If a particular computer might perform, say, a million different tasks, different method calls will tell the computer which of those tasks to choose. Those familiar with the Java language already know countless method calls that allow them to invoke countless tasks. And how does the method call, which a programmer types, actually locate and invoke the particular implementing code that it needs to instruct the computer how to carry out a particular task. It does so through another type of code, which the parties have labeled declaring code. Declaring code is part of the API. For each task, the specific command entered by the programmer matches up with specific declaring code inside the API. That declaring code provides both the name for each task and the location of each task within the API's overall organizational system. In this sense, the declaring code and the method call form a link allowing the programmer to draw upon the thousands of pre-written tasks written in implementing code. Without that declaring code, the method calls entered by the programmer would not call up the implementing code. The declaring code therefore performs at least two important functions in the SunJava API. The first, more obvious function is that the declaring code enables a set of shortcuts for programmers. By connecting complex implementing code with method calls, it allows a programmer to pick out from the API's task library a particular task without having to learn anything more than a simple command. For example, a programmer building a new application for personal banking may wish to use various tasks to, say, calculate a user's balance or authenticate a password. To do so, she need only learn the method calls associated with those tasks. In this way, the declaring code's shortcut function is similar to a gas pedal in a car that tells the car to move faster or the QWERTY keyboard on a typewriter that calls up a certain letter when you press a particular key. As those analogies demonstrate, 
one can think of the declaring code as part of an interface between human beings and a machine. The second, less obvious function is to reflect the way in which Java's creators have divided the potential world of different tasks into an actual world, i.e. precisely which set of potentially millions of different tasks we want to have our Java-based computer systems perform and how we want those tasks arranged and grouped. In this sense, the declaring code performs an organizational function. It determines the structure of the task library that Java's creators have decided to build. To understand this organizational system, think of the Dewey Decimal System that categorizes books into an accessible system or a travel guide that arranges a city's attractions into different categories. Language itself provides a rough analogy to the declaring code's organizational feature, for language itself divides into sets of concepts, a world that in certain respects other languages might have divided differently. The developers of Java, for example, decided to place a method called drawImage inside of a class called graphics. Consider a comprehensive, albeit far-fetched, analogy that illustrates how the API is actually used by a programmer. Imagine that you can, via certain keystrokes, instruct a robot to move to a particular file cabinet to open a certain drawer and to pick out a specific recipe. With the proper recipe in hand, the robot then moves to your kitchen and gives it to a cook to prepare the dish. This example mirrors the API's task-related organizational system. Through your simple command, the robot locates the right recipe and hands it off to the cook. In the same way, typing in a method call prompts the API to locate the correct implementing code and hand it off to your computer. And importantly, to select the dish that you want for your meal. You do not need to know the recipe's contents. Just as a programmer using an API does not need to learn the implementing code. In both situations, Learning the simple command is enough. Now let us consider the example that the district court used to explain the precise technology here. A programmer wishes, as part of her program, to determine which of two integers is the larger. To do so in the Java language, she will first write J-A-V-A Dot L-A-N-G. Those words refer to the package or by analogy to the file cabinet. She will then write capital M-A-T-H. That word refers to the class or by analogy to the drawer. She will then write M-A-X. 
That word refers to the method or by analogy to the recipe. She will then make two parentheses. And in between the parentheses, she will put two integers, say four and six, that she wishes to compare. The whole expression, the method call, will look like this. J-A-V-A dot L-A-N-G dot capital M-A-T-H dot M-A-X parentheses four comma space six parentheses. The use of this expression will, by means of the API, call up a task implementing program that will determine the higher number. In writing this program, the programmer will use the very symbols just spelled out in the precise order we have placed them. But the symbols by themselves do nothing. She must also use software that connects the symbols to the equivalent of file cabinets, drawers, and files. The API is that software. It includes both the declaring code that links each part of the method call to the particular task implementing program and the implementing code that actually carries it out. Now we can return to the copying at issue in this case. Google did not copy the task implementing programs or implementing code from Sun Java API. It wrote its own task implementing programs, such as those that would determine which of two integers is the greater or carry out any other desired, normally far more complex task. This implementing code constitutes the vast majority of both the Sun Java API and the API that Google created for Android. For most of the packages in its new API, Google also wrote its own declaring code. For 37 packages, however, Google copied the declaring code from the Sun Java API. As just explained, that means that for those 37 packages, Google necessarily copied both the names given to particular tasks and the grouping of those tasks into classes and packages. In doing so, Google copied that portion of the Sun Java API that allowed programmers expert in the Java programming language to use the task calling system that they had already learned. As Google saw it, the 37 packages at issue included those tasks that were likely to prove most useful to programmers working on applications for mobile devices. In fact, three of these packages were fundamental to being able to use the Java language at all. By using the same declaring code for those packages, programmers using the Android platform can rely on the method calls 
that they are already familiar with to call up particular tasks. But Google's own implementing programs carry out those tasks. Without that copying, programmers would need to learn an entirely new system to call up the same tasks. We add that the Android platform has been successful. Within five years of its release in 2007, Android-based devices claimed a large share of the United States market. As of 2015, Android sales produced more than $42 billion in revenue. In 2010, Oracle Corporation bought Sun. Soon thereafter, Oracle brought this lawsuit in the United States District Court for the Northern District of California. Part 2 The case has a complex and lengthy history. At the outset, Oracle complained that Google's use of the Sun Java API violated both copyright and patent laws. For its copyright claim, Oracle alleged that Google infringed its copyright by copying for 37 packages both the literal declaring code and the non-literal organizational structure, or SSO, of the API, i.e. the grouping of certain methods into classes and certain classes into packages. For trial purposes, the district court organized three proceedings. The first would cover the copyright issues, the second would cover the patent issues, and the third would, if necessary, calculate damages. The court also determined that a judge should decide whether copyright law could protect an API and that the jury should decide whether Google's use of Oracle's API infringed its copyright, and if so, whether a fair use defense nonetheless applied. After six weeks of hearing evidence, the jury rejected Oracle's patent claims, which have since dropped out of the case. It also found a limited copyright infringement. It deadlocked as to whether Google could successfully assert a fair use defense. The judge then decided that regardless, the API's declaring code was not the kind of creation to which copyright law extended its protection. The court noted that Google had written its own implementing code, which constituted the vast majority of its API. It wrote that anyone is free, under the Copyright Act, to write his or her own code to carry out exactly the same tasks that Sun Java API picks out or specifies. Google copied only the declaring code and organizational structure that was necessary for Java-trained programmers to activate familiar tasks while, as we said, writing its own implementing code. Hence, the copied material, in the judge's view, was a system or method of operation 
which copyright law specifically states cannot be copyrighted. On appeal, the Federal Circuit reversed. That court held that both the API's declaring code and its organizational structure could be copyrighted. It pointed out that Google could have written its own declaring code just as it wrote its own implementing code. And because, in principle, Google might have created a whole new system of dividing and labeling tasks that could be called up by programmers, the declaring code and the system that made up the Sun Java API was copyrightable. The Federal Circuit also rejected Oracle's plea that it decide whether Google had the right to use the Sun Java API because doing so was a fair use, immune from copyright liability. The circuit wrote that fair use both permits and requires courts to avoid rigid application of the copyright statute when on occasion it would stifle the very creativity which that law is designed to foster. But, it added, this is not a case in which the record contains sufficient factual findings upon which we could base a de novo assessment of Google's affirmative defense of fair use. And it remanded the case for another trial on that question. Google petitioned this court for a writ of certiorari, seeking review of the Federal Circuit's copyrightability determination. We denied the petition. On remand, the district court, sitting with a jury, heard evidence for a week. The court instructed the jury to answer one question. Has Google shown, by a preponderance of the evidence, that its use in Android of the declaring code and organizational structure contained in the 37 Sun Java API packages that it copied constitutes a fair use under the Copyright Act. After three days of deliberation, the jury answered the question in the affirmative. Google had shown fair use. Oracle again appealed to the Federal Circuit, and the Circuit again reversed the District Court. The Federal Circuit assumed all factual questions in Google's favor, but, it said, the question whether those facts constitute a fair use is a question of law. Deciding that question of law, the Court held that Google's use of the Sun Java API was not a fair use. It wrote that there is nothing fair about taking a copyrighted work verbatim and using it for the same purpose and function as the original in a competing platform. It remanded the case again, this time for a trial on damages. Google then filed a petition for certiorari in this court. It asked us to review the Federal Circuit's determinations as to both copyrightability and fair use. We granted its petition.
Part 3 Section A Copyright and patents, the Constitution says, are to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Copyright statutes and case law have made clear that copyright has practical objectives. It grants an author an exclusive right to produce his work sometimes for a hundred years or more, not as a special reward, but in order to encourage the production of works that others might reproduce more cheaply. At the same time, copyright has negative features. Protection can raise prices to consumers. It can impose special costs, such as the cost of contacting owners to obtain reproduction permission. And the exclusive rights it awards can sometimes stand in the way of others exercising their own creative powers. Macaulay once said that the principle of copyright is a tax on readers for the purpose of giving a bounty to writers. Congress, weighing advantages and disadvantages, will determine the more specific nature of the tax, its boundaries and conditions, the existence of exceptions and exemptions, all by exercising its own constitutional power to write a copyright statute. Four provisions of the current Copyright Act are of particular relevance in this case. First, a definitional provision sets forth three basic conditions for obtaining a copyright. There must be a work of authorship, that work must be original, and the work must be fixed in any tangible medium of expression. Second, the statute lists certain kinds of works that copyright can protect. They include literary, musical, dramatic, motion picture, architectural, and certain other works. In 1980, Congress expanded the reach of the Copyright Act to include computer programs, and it defined computer program as a set of statements or instructions to be used directly or indirectly in a computer in order to bring about a certain result. Third, the statute sets forth limitations on the works that can be copyrighted, including works that the definitional provisions might otherwise include. It says, for example, that copyright protection cannot be extended to any idea, procedure, process, system, method of operation, concept, principle, or discovery. These limitations, along with the need to fix a work in a tangible medium of expression, have often led courts to say, in shorthand form, that unlike patents, which protect novel and useful ideas, copyrights protect expression, but not the ideas 
that lie behind it. Fourth, Congress, together with the courts, has imposed limitations upon the scope of copyright protection, even in respect to works that are entitled to a copyright. For example, the Copyright Act limits an author's exclusive rights in performances and displays, or to performances of sound recordings. And directly relevant here, a copyright holder cannot prevent another person from making a fair use of copyrighted material. We have described the fair use doctrine originating in the courts as an equitable rule of reason that permits courts to avoid rigid application of the copyright statute when on occasion it would stifle the very creativity which that law is designed to foster. The statutory provision that embodies the doctrine indicates, rather than dictates, how courts should apply it. The provision says, The fair use of a copyrighted work for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research is not an infringement of copyright. In determining whether the use made of a work in any particular case is a fair use, the factors to be considered shall include 1. The purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for nonprofit educational purposes. 2. The nature of the copyrighted work. 3. The amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. And 4 the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. In applying this provision, we, like other courts, have understood that the provision's list of factors is not exhaustive, that the examples it sets forth do not exclude other examples, and that some factors may prove more important in some contexts than in others. In a word, we have understood the provision to set forth general principles, the application of which requires judicial balancing, depending upon relevant circumstances, including significant changes in technology. Section B. Google's petition for certiorari poses two questions. The first asks whether Java's API is copyrightable. It asks us to examine two of the statutory provisions just mentioned, one that permits copywriting computer programs and the other that forbids copywriting. For example, processes systems, and methods of operation. Google believes that the API's declaring code and organization fall into these latter categories and are expressly excluded from copyright protection. 
The second question asks us to determine whether Google's use of the API was a fair use. Google believes that it was. A holding for Google on either question presented would dispense with Oracle's copyright claims. Given the rapidly changing technological, economic, and business-related circumstances, we believe we should not answer more than is necessary to resolve the party's dispute. We shall assume, but purely for argument's sake, that the entire SunJava API falls within the definition of that which can be copyrighted. We shall ask instead whether Google's use of part of that API was a fair use. Unlike the Federal Circuit, we conclude that it was. We've finished the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, the next episode will pick up exactly where this episode ended.